As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Well, this is a kind of a, um, a bittersweet morning. We are finishing off the book of Acts. I always feel a bit of pain every time I, I finish a book of the Bible because, you know, in one sense, if, if God is gracious and, and even if, if God affords me a long opportunity to be in ministry and to preach the Word of God, um, it's very rare. There's so much of the Bible to cover. It's rare that you're going to get a, to come back around and preach through an entire book. And so um, I have just been so blessed and encouraged, and I pray that you have too. I feel like this has been an, a really important book for our church, especially at this phase in the life of our church. As we get to look back to the, the first church in its beginning stages, and as we get to watch it begin to mature and flourish, and we see how God has desired to use the church of Jesus Christ to send the gospel forward to the ends of the earth. But I wonder, even as you think about the book of Acts, if you can just um, maybe consider with me something I'm sure you've experienced. Have you ever been reading a novel or maybe watching a movie or a TV series and you're at the end maybe of the final chapter or you're at the end of the movie or the final episode of the final season of a series. It's all coming to a close and at the very end, not just the final chapter, but the final scene, it ends and you're like, really? That, that was it? That, that's how it ends? And it kind of leaves you at a place where you long for more. You, you think there should be more than this. This can't be how it ends. It's not supposed to end like this. And here's what I want you to see. That's the exact way that the Holy Spirit has designed the book of Acts to come to its completion. It is designed by God to leave us seeing that this is the final scene, the final chapter, and it is not quite finished. It is finished, yes, in one sense, but there is so much more, and by God's design, he leaves us with this deep longing for more. We know inherently when we get to the end of this book that there is more, there is more to be written. And the good news for you and I is this, that in God's design, he wants us to understand that the part that is being written has to do with you, and it has to do with me. We are included in the ongoing story of the book of Acts and the church of Jesus Christ. The final act of this story is the climax it ties the whole play together, so to speak, bringing a sense of resolution and yet at the same time giving us that understanding that there is more to be done. This is Paul's final chapter in one sense, but it is not the final chapter for the church. So while it closes for us this morning, I want you to also hear that it actually remains open for us this morning. The Acts of the Apostles has ended, but the history of the church and the Acts of the Holy Spirit is still being written. We are drawn into this great story, and we are called to participate in this wonderful, majestic, supernatural, unfolding drama of God. Our role is to continue what Paul started, to keep moving the gospel forward. We have a part to play in bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And to do that, we need to look at Paul as he closes off the book of Acts, as Luke writes this for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we need to see what Paul remained committed to in his life and in his ministry to the very end. We too must be committed to the same things if we are going to be used effectively by God and for his glory and purposes. 
like Paul, we must commit ourselves first to present with perseverance. We are called to be those who would present to the world something beautiful, something life-saving, and something life-giving. We pick up in verse 16. You remember Paul has been making his way to Rome after the shipwreck. He's finally found himself in Rome. He's placed on house arrest, but he's given very kind of loose restrictions. There's a lot of freedom giving, and he is awaiting a trial. He is on trial for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has been God's design to get Paul to this place, to Rome, the place, the, the center really of the known world, where so many people from all over the world are coming in and out. The potential for the gospel to spread beyond is immense in this moment. That is so important to see in the strategy and design and the plan of God. Verse 16 Read it with me. It says this, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Paul first lands in Rome, and the first thing he wants to do is he wants to gather the Jews together. This was his pattern. Remember, he always goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Paul had never been to Rome, but the gospel that he preached had spread all the way to Rome. And at this point, there were little church gatherings already beginning to crop up all across Rome. There were synagogues in Rome as well. Paul, knowing that this was the right place to start because God longed first to bring his chosen people to himself, he longed for the Jewish people to come and embrace him. After all, they had been awaiting their Messiah. He goes to the Jews first, but this time he goes first, notice, with the desire to bring clarity. He wants to clarify who he is and what he's all about. You see, there's a little bit of apprehension in the heart of Paul. He, he seems to think that somehow they have heard of him already. And they make it clear that no evil has been spoken about him. In other words, words not been able to travel this far yet about Paul specifically. But what they do know is this sect, this Christian sect, which is a branch they saw kind of flowing out of Judaism. They saw it as a heretical sect. They definitely were not appreciative of the Christians. They thought they were heretics. They wanted nothing to do with them. They looked down on them and they rejected them. They persecuted them. Paul feels this deep need to clarify some things. And I just want you to see that Paul is relentless in his pursuit of presenting the truth. He simply wants the truth to be known. He doesn't want it to be abused. He doesn't want it to be misunderstood. He wants there to be such clarity when he brings the truth. 
He's nonstop, and you can see there is a, a sense of perseverance in the heart of Paul. He knows, he knows, and we need to know this too, that the truth is always going to be maligned. The servants of God are always going to be maligned, but regardless of what comes against the servants of God, there is a desperate need of perseverance as we long to present the truth. What, what exactly do we present? I think we can take some clues here from Paul. It's interesting to me because I think we, ha- we can uh, really relate to Paul and, and maybe assuming or believing that people maybe have a misunderstanding of him and the message he brings. So the first thing I just want to challenge you with is this. What we so often begin with is this. We present first ourselves. When you bring the truth to somebody, what you first bring is yourself. You present yourself to them in all that you are, in all who you are, and, and it's really interesting to me that that's exactly what Paul wants to do. He essentially says, hey, hey, I'm not sure if you've heard of me, but if you have, let me clarify some things. He wants them to have a true sense of who he is. He assumes that they have a preconceived understanding of who he is, what he's done, and what he believes. I find, again, this this really striking because I think in our culture, Christianity has, by the grace of God, spread far and wide, but we know, all of us know, that there have been gross misrepresentations of Christianity amongst the world, hasn't there? People have really abused the Christian faith, and so I find that it's not uncommon that if you simply, you know, you, you go to somebody and you tell them you're a Christian, you can bet that instantly they have a conception, most likely a misconception or an assumption of what that actually means. Sometimes, like, it, it never ceases to amaze me that, you know, maybe you're, you're out with people and for the first time you're, you're talking about what you do for a living. This is really particular to me, but the moment somebody finds out I'm a pastor, it's like, oh, you know, you're going on the golf course, and, uh, you know, maybe I don't golf much, but when I do get out, you know, that's one of the great questions. Hey, what do you do for a living? And everybody goes around and shares, and it gets to me. I usually wait till last and go, well, I'm a pastor. And if they don't know you, it's like, okay, thanks for shutting down all conversation now. <laughs> Why? Why is that? Because they have an assumption. They think they know what you're about. They think they know what you're like, and maybe they think you're going to be judgmental. Maybe they think you're going to just instantly condemn them. Maybe they think you think you're better than them. I I don't know what they may be thinking. We've heard some of these things before, and sometimes it's true because that's the way Christians have presented themselves. Sometimes it's absolutely false because that's a mischaracterization that Satan would want the world to believe. The word Christian instantly brings up all kinds of things in people's minds. The name Jesus brings all kinds of things to people's minds. It's not uncommon for me to to begin a conversation and to get to know somebody who had these misconceptions, to hear the words like, you know, eventually, you know, you're not what I expected from a Christian. I'm like, well, that's interesting. What exactly did you expect? Well, I thought Christians did this. I thought Christians believe that. I thought Christians treated people like this. My experience has been this. You see, so we're so often fighting against these kinds of misconceptions. And it's important that we present ourselves well. We dare not bring reproach upon Christ because of the way that we have mishandled the Christian faith. The way that we have failed to behave in a way that would bring honor to Christ and accurately bear witness to the truth that we love and believe and long to present to those around us. 
Paul explains that he's done nothing wrong. That's what he goes on to do. And he wants to make it clear that he has been on trial um, unjustly. And everywhere he goes, you know, through all this process, it's always been proven that he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong worthy of death. But the Jews keep on pressing, keep on pressing, keep on pressing. And in the design of God, this pressing is, gets him right to where he wanted to be, to where God told him he would be right in Rome. I just want to talk a little bit more about this concept of presenting ourselves. I think it comes down to reputation. And let me just say this right out of the gates. Being thought well of is not the same thing as wanting people to think well of you. Let me say that again. There's a really important distinction that needs to be made. Being thought well of is not the same thing as wanting people to think well of you. One of those, being uh, wanting people to think well of you, is bent on pleasing people. It is driven by a fear and insecurity of what others think of you. It, it, its, its goal is to make sure you present yourself in a way that people like you, that people love you, that people respect you, that they don't think ill of you. The other, being thought well of, in the Christian framework, listen, is a result of seeking to live a life pleasing to God. It is the natural byproduct of living a life of character and integrity, of adherence to the word of God, of having affections that are for God and for his glory. The outcome of that is, is a desire to obey his will, uh, not perfectly because that's impossible, but in a life of humility, of constant repentance, a life of faith, a life that loves the truth, you know, it's interesting that a couple times in the scriptures, it talks about those who grew and were growing both in wisdom and stature, and they, they had the favor of both God and man. The first time we read of this is in the book of 1 Samuel, speaking specifically of Samuel, the young boy who would become the great prophet over Israel. As he grew, listen, in his young life, as he matured and grew to know and love the things of the Lord, everybody saw the fruit of his life, and when they looked at him, not only did they know that God was pleased with him, but they were pleased with him. There was nothing they could look at in his character and say, look how bad he is, look how sinful he is, they looked at him and said, look how holy he is, look how much he loves God. But perhaps the greatest time that this phrase is mentioned, and I think intentionally there's a, a parallel here, it's Jesus Christ, the greater prophet. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, listen to what it says. It says, in Jesus, he's talking as a young boy here at the beginning of Luke, as he began to grow and mature, as Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor, it says, with God and man. You know, as Jesus grew, and we know, we know Jesus, he was the perfect one. He never sinned, not once. He always did the will of the Father. Everything he did was right and true and honoring to the Lord God Almighty. And everybody looked at him, and there was nothing blameless in his character. There was nothing, they could say that he never, never acted sinfully towards anybody. He never hurt anybody with his words or his behavior was never dishonoring to his parents or to his community. It's also interesting to me that when you look in the scriptures about the requirements of elders, it's fascinating. First Timothy chapter three says that an elder, someone who is qualified to lead in the church of Jesus Christ, by the way, this is not, we've talked about this all the time, this is not a, a different qualification for, the, for any other, every Christian's called to the same standard, but an elder, it says, must be thought well of by outsiders. In other words, his life must be so blameless and above reproach, again, not perfect because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but his life as a pattern is to demonstrate that he lives not for himself, for his own selfish purposes, but for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I think of it like this, as you, as you just consider this in your own life, this is so important that we learn to live like this because when we walk up to somebody and we are wanting to present the truth, but that what they first see is ourselves. If they look at us and they see things or they know things or hear things about us that are, are significantly damaging to our reputation, it instantly hinders them from hearing the thing we long to share with them. We need to present ourselves truthfully. We live our lives, listen, with a clear conscience by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit within us. And here's what I think that means. There's nothing hidden in our lives that if was exposed could bring reproach upon Christ and diminish our testimony and our influence in others' lives. And the things that we have committed that are sinful and egregious in our past because Lord knows we all have plenty of those, those are things that we are not afraid to share and we know are covered by the grace of God and we can say that is in my past and by the grace of God I am not who I was then. There's no deceit in our lives. There's no manipulation. We're not presenting to people a veneer, an external picture of who we are when inside we know we are someone completely different. There's no accusation that somebody could throw at us about our character or integrity that will actually stick. When it comes down, the rubber meets the road. We know this, that anything thrown against us will bounce right off. So just consider, as you seek to Move the gospel forward. What you first present is so important. You present yourselves. And I pray by the grace of God we would do so truthfully and honestly. And as we continue to grow and mature, we will have a life that continues to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, and because of that, oftentimes we're given the opportunity to present your Savior. You can present your Savior now as people look at your life and they're not hindered by any of the obstacles because of your own lack of integrity and character it often opens up a willingness in the hearts of people to hear about their Savior. And you notice that this is exactly what he does. And it's interesting, he does so in a very subtle way at first. We can learn from this too. He says, for this reason, verse 20, therefore I have asked to see you and speak with you. Again, this is what his goal is everywhere he goes. Listen to this. Since it is because the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. Now, now to us, we hear that, and and we maybe don't connect the dots, but to the, the faithful Jew, remember, these are the leaders of the Jewish uh, people at the time, these are the, 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 the leaders of the synagogues, and, and they've come together to hear him. Instantly, when they hear this term, the hope of Israel, it connects them back into the Old Testament. It connects them to their long-awaited Messiah. They're waiting for the hope of Israel, the one who's going to come and, and rescue God's people, set them free, liberate them from all oppression, restore them to a place of prominence and prestige. This is what they longed for. This is what they were waiting for. They all wanted this great hope of Israel And Paul says so subtly and so carefully, hey, I'm only here because of the hope of Israel. And instantly he says this, and they confirm that they've heard nothing uh, evil about him, not yet. And I love the response, but we desire, there's a longing in their hearts, you see. We desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this. We want to know what you have to say about this great hope of Israel. You know, I do so appreciate the winsomeness of Paul. He is so careful and strategic. I mean, if if Paul went in and said, I'm only in these chains because of Jesus Christ, instantly he would have shut down all conversation. They would have gnashed their teeth at him. They would have been furious. 
They would have said, we won't want to hear anything about this Jesus, this so-called king of Israel who was crucified. I love what he does here, and he can teach us something. He doesn't go right at the differences between the Jews and the Christians. He goes first at what they have in common. Both the Jews and the Christians were longing for the hope of Israel. The church is an extension of Israel. We are grafted in to the promises of Israel. It is the Messiah of Israel who is the Messiah of the church of Jesus Christ. I've recently been able to have some conversations with some Muslims, Muslims who've been willing to talk about faith and and. It's interesting, one of the ways I've, I've been really figuring out is a way to open up conversation is not to kind of just go, well, well here's, here's what's different about us. Here's what we believe about Jesus. It's to, to begin on a common ground. You see, all Muslims, they believe in Jesus. They believe he was a historical person. They believe he was a prophet. They believe he has a lot of valuable things to say. And that becomes a great bridge into connecting with that person. I always love to start off the conversations, well, hey, you believe in Jesus, right? Like, yes, yes, we, we do. We believe in Jesus. I'm like, that's fantastic. Well, tell me what you believe about Jesus. And they will. They'll, they'll go on and on about what they believe in Jesus. And, and it's a great place to actually begin to have a conversation. You can say, oh, that's interesting. We believe that about Jesus too. Now, maybe can I suggest to you, here's some things that maybe we don't see eye to eye on that are really, really important to understand. I would just submit to you that so often we come in and we want to go right at the heart of the controversy, and instead of actually opening up a conversation, we hinder a great conversation, and we maybe hinder a hearing with people. Paul teaches us that there is great wisdom in being winsome, in carefully and strategically opening up the door to conversations and allowing people to hear what we have to say. And by the way, Paul is not afraid to get to the truth, and neither should we be. He draws them in. He creates an opportunity. Rather than forcing Christ down people's throats, we too, like Paul, need to rightly assess our situation and our audience. The truth never changes, but our approach often does. If we can't gain a hearing, listen to this, we can't present the Savior. Not in a helpful way. And so church, let me encourage you, don't grow weary of presenting yourself faithfully, to God so that you can present yourself faithfully to others as one who loves God. And don't grow weary of presenting your Savior. Paul never did. It was always his joy to not only move quickly past himself, but to point to the one that loved him and set him free. Persevere in this. Clarify the truth. Create opportunities for a hearing. Commit yourself first to present with perseverance. Secondly, commit yourselves to persuade with patience. Persuade with patience. Here we see that Paul takes advantage of the opportunities not only to present the truth, but he wants to wrestle with the hearts of the sinners. He desperately wants the sinners to not only hear the truth, but to clearly understand the truth. And so he's willing to go through the rigors of that to wrestle with the hard questions and to provide good, solid answers. The word of God says in verse 23, look at it with me. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
word travels quickly. And they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came even in large numbers. They must have packed this place full. Maybe they met in a, a corridor somewhere or a, some kind of a, a hall, a fellowship kind of hall where they could debate and discuss issues. But I love what Paul does and what he's committed to so much. You notice this? He spends time with them from morning till evening. He is devoted this entire day. As long as they will sit and listen and think and talk and discuss, he will give all of himself, all of his time, so that those who he presents Christ to can hear and think deeply about it. He longs for them to understand the truth. This is convicting to me, and I think in our busy and chaotic lives and chaotic world, we can so often not be willing to devote the necessary time to really truly help people grapple with the deep things of God. You know, we're always in a rush. We always got something to get to. You know, you feel that, don't you? Uh, the moment you're walking in the door, all you want to do is get in and get on to the next thing. You don't have time to stop and have a deep, long, meaningful conversation with your next door neighbor. Or you're out at, a, uh, at the, your kids' sporting events and the people around you are talking about things and you, you know you can invite them over, but you know your schedule is already so jam-packed and you just don't think you can fit it in. I really believe that one of Satan's greatest ways of hindering the church of Jesus Christ in our day is to make us too busy. Too busy, too busy, too busy. Too busy for the things of God. Too busy to invest ourselves in what matters most. And I can just tell you, there are, there are people I've talked to, I'm so encouraged. Every once in a while I've, I, I hear testimony of people who have recognized this truth and have in very clear, visible ways, pared down their life, gotten rid of things from their schedule that are not necessarily sinful or wrong. They're oftentimes good things, but they're not best things. And can I just tell you, I, just, I truly believe God honors, honors those who take seriously the call to throw themselves into the things of the Lord. And though it may feel like a sacrifice and it may be costly in the eyes of the world, think maybe sometimes we're crazy, in God's economy, it is what He chooses to bless. It, to bless. Morning till evening, Paul devotes himself to this endeavor. It takes great patience to meet with people. It takes great patience to meet with a large group of people. It takes even greater patience to do so all day. And yet Paul is so committed to the task. This is telling us that there is a whole day of intensive testimony and discussion. You know, persuasion often takes time. And as much as we want people to get things like a flip of a light switch, so often the persuasion that is necessary takes time and effort and energy. It always takes great patience, and as we deal with those who so often do not understand, we need to be patient, or we try to help those who long to understand but can't seem to, it takes great patience. Or we try to deal with those who oftentimes appear to refuse to understand, it takes great patience on our part. Paul shows us how to do this so well. How do we persuade with patience? You'll notice the, the words that are used in the text there, they're so key. In verse chapter 23, he says, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Those are power-packed words. They are loaded, and they explain Paul's process and the way he thought about doing this effectively. He is expounding or explaining. He is testifying.
testifying and he is trying with all his, his mental faculties through the power of the Spirit of God to convince those around him of the truth. He begins by expounding, by unpacking God's word. Specifically, it says, expounding the kingdom of God. He is testifying to the kingdom of God. This is a running theme throughout not only the book of Acts, but the entire word of God. The kingdom of God really is the thread throughout all of the scriptures. The kingdom of God begins at the beginning of creation when God created the heavens and the earth and then he put a king, a man, Adam, in his garden as a vice regent, a ruler on his behalf. Someone to take dominion. Think of those words. These are words of royalty and kingship. And yet the kingdom was destroyed and deeply damaged by sin. And the storyline of all of scripture is moving back towards the reestablishment and the full fulfillment and restoration of the kingdom of God. That is what is awaiting us when the true king, the second Adam, will come and rule and reign. He'll put an end to all of his enemies, conquering with great finality sin and death. All through the scriptures, we see this promise of a coming kingdom and a coming king. It encompasses God's rule in the sphere right now of salvation. It's not just talking about the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ, although that is deeply, deeply important to this conversation. But right here, right now, it is talking and testifying about the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us in as citizens of the kingdom. The good news that God sovereignly calls sinners who are hopelessly, listen, caught in the realm of Satan, death, and destruction to enter the realm of salvation, of life, and of glory, to be removed out of the kingdom of darkness and be brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Paul proclaimed the truths, it says, concerning, I believe, the way of salvation and righteous living, what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He pointed the way for them to enter this sphere of salvation, to enjoy fellowship with God, to come under the benevolent and sufficient and satisfying rule of God. How did he do this? It says he was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, the king of the kingdom. The vehicle for doing this, by the way, was, notice, the law of Moses and the prophets. Paul didn't come on his own authority. Paul didn't come and say, listen to my opinion or my perspective on these things. He came to those who claimed to know the truth and to love the truth, and he opened the truth. He opened the scriptures that they say they believed, and he began to go through all of the Old Testament with them and to show them how God promised that there was a coming kingdom and that God promised there would be a king, and he showed them that this king is Jesus. Many of us know the gospel, and that's a good thing. But let me ask you this. Can you go to the scriptures? Can you go to the Old Testament and show God's plan of redemption unfolding through the pages of scripture? Can you go back into the word of God and show the authority of God's word, how it sheds light on all of these truths? It's important that we know the gospel 
But as Christians, it's incredibly important that we can go to the Word of God and show the gospel. The future, full and complete reign of God will come with all of its fulfillments and blessings. But Paul wanted to be so clear that it all centralizes on Jesus Christ. The Word of God has one main theme from cover to cover, and His name is Jesus. Paul longed to show people this. He longed to persuade them to help them embrace, understand, and embrace this truth. It is God who has told us these things through His Word, and Paul forces people not to deal with his own personal opinion. He forces people to deal with the authoritative Word of God. Church, we must take people to the Scriptures. We must expound God's plan of salvation. We must be pointing them always and ever to Jesus Christ. We must seek to persuade people. There are some people in the Christian life, I've come across people like this, who genuinely believe that we should not be trying to persuade anybody, that we leave the persuading work to God. We simply just present the truth. And I want you to see very clearly from Scripture that that is not an accurate way of describing and defining the Christian's role in leading people to Jesus Christ. God does the work in the heart. We all believe that. We believe that God must open the heart of the sinner. We believe that God must convince the sinner fully and finally. We believe it's his spirit. We dare not believe that we somehow have the wisdom and the knowledge and the power in ourselves to make anybody believe. We cannot do that. But by the grace of God, we can persuade people. We can articulate and argue and defend the faith. I mean, wasn't, I mean it was just read. I love that it was just read. I love when God does this. So not planned, just so you know. But, but as Philip read, in the scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 3, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you. In other words, always be ready to explain to people why it is you believe what you believe. There is no excuse for ignorance in the Christian life. And if you don't know how to explain it, you need to grow in this. You need to learn why you believe what you believe because it will strengthen your faith and it will strengthen your testimony and God can use it powerfully, listen, to persuade and bring conviction to the hearts of sinners to bring salvation and life. We persuade, that's Paul right here. He shows us how important this is. He's trying to convince them. What's the result? Look at this. And some were convinced. Isn't that awesome? Listen, you just need to think about this for a second. Isn't it awesome that God might use you or me to actually help convince somebody that he is the savior of the world and the king of kings? By his grace, we have the privilege, listen, of being involved in God's plan of redemption. Right? So we go to the ends of the earth, and it is one of the greatest joys knowing that God can use sinners like us. Who did God use in your life to help convince you of the truth of the gospel? Who is God maybe using you right now to help convince of the gospel? Some will be convinced, and we know this, the gospel divides, and some always choose to reject, and that's exactly what happens. Others disbelieved, it says here. We must be prepared in our, in our willingness and commitment to persuade with patience. We must understand that while some will believe, many will not. Jesus himself said that many are called, but few are chosen. 
And so it doesn't surprise us when there are people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there are consequences for that. And so often Christians are afraid to lay out the consequences, but here we see Paul is not. And I want to encourage you as we look at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, as it all comes to a close, lastly, we need to be willing to do what he did. We need to commit to proclaim with passion. We present We persuade, and we continue to proclaim. We are called to be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go before our King. In verse 25, it says this, that in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Now, I just want you to hear this. So here they are. They're all gathered together. They're all listening. He's persuading some. Some are still wrestling through it. Some are unconvinced, and some are just flat out rejecting. And then it says that Paul, he ends the entire discussion with one statement. From morning till evening, they've been meeting. And then one fell swoop, Paul comes in and says one thing that shuts down the entire meeting. And here's what we need to see here. Listen, listen, as some people refuse to believe, we need to be willing to speak clearly. We need to be willing to speak clearly. I think that's coming up on the screen. This is incredibly important. I I think sometimes, listen, in the Christian life, we can be very ambiguous. We can be far too general. Paul shows us the importance of being very clear about what happens. Listen, not only for those, you have to believe, when he was persuading people and convincing people about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ, he was laying out all the positive benefits of believing in Jesus, of having the salvation, your sins forgiven, new life in Jesus Christ, power to live the life of Jesus Christ, all the positive benefits are laid out, and that is so appealing to the hearts of so many, but many who hear this, they go, meh, I don't care, I don't want that, I don't, I don't care about that, I reject that. That truth. I don't need that truth. And listen, everybody is, is, is able to make their own decision. In fact, everybody will stand before God and give an account for the decision that they made. But, but, but they must know the consequences. They have to know clearly what the consequences are for rejecting the truth. Because so often it is rightly understanding the consequences that puts a healthy fear of God into somebody that causes them to reconsider the truth. And so here, ending this day-long meeting, he makes this statement that is very strong, but it is very clear. And he does so, I love this, he does so by quoting the word of God. Again, Paul's saying, this isn't my opinion. This isn't something I've made up. This is something that God, who offers you salvation, has told you before, and you need to listen not to me. It's not about my words. It's not about, you're not offending me by rejecting me or the gospel. It's about God. You you need to hear God in this. And to the Jews, listen, who had been told for so many thousands of years about the hope of Israel, the Messiah, and they rejected him, not willing to see. He quotes, he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they, have, they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Listen, this is a severe warning, but in this, this is a, it's an incredible act of God's grace and love. 
See what he's saying? He's saying God has always pursued sinners. God has always come after his people. God always offers the hope of salvation. If you would just hear, hear my word, believe, and turn from your sin towards me, I will gladly heal you in all of your brokenness, in all of your sinfulness. I will wipe it all away. I will make you clean. I will make you whole. And time after time after time, year after year after year, millennia goes by, and the people of Israel still refuse God, reject God, or are unwilling to submit to the word of God. And Paul here holds out this truth that has been true for generations of Jewish people, and he says, you're just like your fathers who rejected the truth of God's word. You know, Jesus had quoted this very same text in the Gospels to explain to the disciples why he spoke in parables. And here Paul used it to demonstrate Israel's stubbornness and their unwillingness to understand how God's providence brought redemption. This warning, you need to hear this, this warning applies not only to Israel as a nation, but to individuals both then and both and now. Commentator Marshall, he puts it this way. He says, God's word brings the diagnosis of sin, which is painful to hear and accept. But the same, at the same time, it wounds in order to heal. And once a person deliberately refuses the word, there comes a point when he is deprived of the capacity to receive it. It is a stern warning to those who trifle with the gospel. I don't say this lightly, but I want, I want to say this, I believe, as clearly as the Word of God is saying it. There are people who will hear the gospel repeatedly in their life, over and over and over again, and because of their stubborn, willful, blatant rejection, there comes a point where they are no longer able to turn and be healed. There's a sense in which their fate is sealed. I'll be honest, I don't know when that is. And, and, and I would tell you this, that this is no excuse to give up preaching the gospel to anybody ever. It is a sad, listen, theological reality that you and I must understand. If you're an unbeliever, let me just speak to you just for a moment. It doesn't get more serious than this. And I don't know how many times you've heard the gospel. I don't know how many times maybe you've sat in this church and heard the gospel preached. I don't know how many times somebody sitting beside you who lovingly has shared Christ with you. I don't know how many times they've heard it, but can I urge you, please, please don't go past the point of no return. In God's grace, he keeps calling you. He keeps coming back to you. He longs to restore you. Would you be willing to humble yourself and to look to the cross? God loved you so much. Listen, the depth of God's love is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. He loved you so much, he was willing to endure the most horrific death ever devised by man. He was willing to bear the shame of your sin. 
He was willing to take the guilt from all of the sin that you have committed upon himself. And more than that, he was willing to take all of your punishment. He was willing to take the wrath of God for you. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait any longer. The author of Hebrews says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can have the hope of Israel applied to your life. Today is the day where you no longer have to live in your guilt and shame. Today is the day where you no longer have to keep going through the motions of your life realizing that it's so empty, it's so devoid of meaning and purpose, and you have this gaping hole and longing in your soul for something more. Today is the day you can realize that that can be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You can turn to him and he will heal you. So how do I do that? You bow. You bow before the Lord and you confess, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of you. You talk to God. You just tell him. You agree with him who you are, how, what he says about you. You, in, you are in need of salvation. All of your sins are deserving of his wrath. And you just say, God, forgive me. I look to Jesus Christ. He is the one who stood in my place. He has died for me. He has died and risen from the grave so that I can have new life in him. God says, if you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, if you believe it in your heart, you will be saved. That hope is extended to you today, and it was extended to those people that Paul was preaching to, but they had rejected so much, and, and he, he resorts to telling them, listen, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You won't listen, you won't hear God is going to use your stubborn rebellion to open the floodgates of salvation to the Gentiles. This, by the way, is not a permanent rejection or replacement of Israel. This is a movement. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. This is a movement from Jews in a given city to Gentiles in that same city. Paul says, I tried. I went to the Jews first, and you continue to reject. I'm, I'm spending my time and my efforts no longer on the rebellious Jewish people who reject God flat out. I'm going to the Gentiles, and I'm telling them that there is hope for them. We speak clearly because we know, listen, we know, church, this is so important. We know what's at stake. We know that we are dealing with eternal matters. We're not dealing with something that is fleeting or temporary. We are dealing with the souls of human beings, a soul that hangs in the balance of heaven and hell. And we must be clear about what it means both to accept Jesus Christ and embrace all the blessings that are afforded to us in Christ, but what it means to reject Jesus. We speak clearly as we proclaim with passion, but we must speak constantly, secondly. And during this time, Paul accomplished so much. Verse 30 doesn't tell us explicitly, but let me walk you through what's going on. Verse 30, it says, it says this, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. During this time while Paul was on house arrest, he continued his ministry. His trial was delayed and delayed and delayed and eventually it appears that it was simply thrown out of court. But during this time, he was actively engaged. He was constantly engaged in the work of the ministry, not just through personal ministry and through his speaking ministry, but through his writing ministry. At this point in Paul's life, he wrote four epistles. He wrote the book of Ephesians, of Philippians, of Colossians, of Philemon. 
Later on, as he would be arrested and put back in prison, he wrote what we refer to as the prison epistles. We learn that Paul expected to stand trial and he expected to be released. And after Paul's release from this Roman imprisonment, he actually continued his evangelistic work in the eastern portion of the empire of Rome, perhaps even fulfilling his long cherished desire to visit Spain. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is speaking. He's at the end of his life in his ministry. He speaks of an approaching second trial, and there's a tone of resignation. Paul is put back in prison. He's rearrested about 67 AD, and according to tradition, Paul would be beheaded at Rome by the order of the Emperor Nero. But what I love about Paul is that no matter what he faced, he was constantly speaking of Christ. Luke did not write Paul's biography. He wrote a record of the early church's expansion. But Paul's life reminds us of our great responsibility and privilege that like Paul, we too live to proclaim Christ. With whatever time we have, wherever God has placed us, wherever we may find ourselves, we are called by God to faithfully advance the gospel. It was the passion of his life to constantly speak of Christ. You know, I'm reminded that we, we speak of what we are most passionate about, don't we? We can't help speaking of what we're passionate about. And what we are passionate about exposes what we love most. And what we love most is what we will ultimately worship most. There's a real need in our hearts to constantly be pulled back to a passionate love and affection for Jesus Christ. To look back to the cross and to see that it was our sins that held him there. To remember the great love of God that compels us to love him in return. It must become the dominating passion of your life, not only to love Jesus, but to proclaim him. We, like Paul, must speak clearly, we must speak constantly, and finally we must speak courageously. It says that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, notice this, with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke ends the book on a ringing note of victory. During these two years, Paul unequivocally and unashamedly with great boldness preached the kingdom of God and he taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this, the, the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke adds this, without hindrance. And I think that's so important because I believe the Spirit of God wants us to grasp the reality that God's message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will proceed unhindered throughout the world. Whatever happens to the messenger is essentially inconsequential because the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. It cannot be hindered. It knows no boundaries. There is no power that can come against it. So Paul has this immense courage. He has nothing to fear. He doesn't care if his life continues to go on or if it's taken from him. He just knows that while he exists, he exists to proclaim Christ and him crucified.
Our part in this, church, listen, is to make sure that we proclaim Christ with passion, the truth that has set us free, that we move forward on this mission that we are called to by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to advance forward with great courage, with great boldness, confident in our calling from God and confident in the power of God. God will make sure, listen, that the gospel goes where he wants it and does what he wants it to do. It will not be stopped. And you may be familiar, if you're a a fan of music and particularly classical music, you may be familiar with the famous Unfinished Symphony composed by Franz Schubert. In this Unfinished Symphony, it's famous because it has this abrupt ending. It's made it world famous. It just kind of ends. You know, Luke has also given us a bit of an abrupt ending. He gives us an unfinished symphony, an unfinished story, but from all evidence, that is exactly what the Spirit of God intended. In his typical style, much in the way he ended his gospel, Luke emphasizes the positive and healthy forward movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of the kingdom of God. Rome may bind the preacher, but the gospel cannot be bound. That is the message of Acts. We may only have 28 chapters here. But I think you could argue that each year in the life of the church, another chapter is written. And I wonder if Luke were still writing today what he might say about our church. Acts is really not an unfinished story. It finishes precisely where the Holy Spirit intended it to. And it ends church with the triumphant victory of Jesus Christ and his message going forward right until the very close of this book. And in the final analysis, Christ, not Paul, is the hero of Acts. The church has passed the baton through many hands down through the centuries to us. Will our future generations find that we ran the leg of our race faithfully? What will be written about this church? What will be written about your life? Will it be said that we were ones who lived out our faith in this generation? What will your chapter look like? My prayer is that we will go. That we will see the call of the Great Commission and we will go filled with faith that God has called us to the ends of the earth to herald the good news of the King who is coming to reclaim his kingdom. Father, we pray. We pray, Lord, that this truth would fire our hearts. And Lord, where there is only a flickering flame, God, would you fan it into a blazing bonfire? God, forgive us for being so apathetic in our passion for you, in our desire for you, in our affection for you. Forgive us, Lord, for being, as a result of that, apathetic in the calling that you have given us, Lord, the calling to go to the ends of the earth, the calling to live for you and for your glory. Father, we confess as this 
book comes to a close, so too one day our lives will come to a close. And God, I, I ask, Lord, I ask this for myself, Father. I ask this for every person here that you would make it the desire of our hearts that when, that when our chapter comes to a close, it will be said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Father, in this moment, we say, Lord, we are yours. We are all yours. Lord, for those of us who have been wandering far away from you, Father, we come back to you in this moment, and we commit ourselves to you once more. And we say, God, thank you for your forgiveness and grace. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that has been lavished upon us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, Father, you can reclaim our broken lives, and, Father, you can make something beautiful. You can take us, Lord, and use us to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. God, would you make it the desire and the passion of our hearts to go. God, this is what you have called us to. May we be found faithful when all is analyzed, when all is laid bare. May our lives be seen as a living, living sacrifice and offering of worship to you. God, we declare to you today that we long to go. Help us, Lord, for we are weak, but we know, Lord, that you are strong. Your gospel knows no bounds. Your power has no ends. We have great confidence in our great God. You have saved us. You have called us. Now we ask that you would use us. We pray this in the mighty, the strong, the powerful, the awesome name of Jesus Christ. Amen.